Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free anytime you want it at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. The Jazz Session has links right at thejazzsession.com to Facebook and Twitter and the RSS feed and subscribing in iTunes and all that good stuff. You'll also find a link to purchase the album by uh, each show's artist at Amazon, and a small portion of those proceeds benefit the show. And you can benefit the show even more directly using the Donate button, which is now at thejazzsession.com. This show is and will always remain free, but if you'd like to give a little back, just hit that Donate button and donate securely via PayPal or your bank account. Thanks so much. My guest today is Harris Eisenstadt. He's got a new album called Canada Day. And if you're in the New York City area or you can get there, he and the Canada Day band are performing on February 26th and 27th in Brooklyn at a place called iBeam. You can find out more at iBeamBrooklyn.com. That's I-B-E-A-M Brooklyn.com. And here's what you'll hear if you go to the show. My guest is Harris Eisenstadt. His uh, most recent album on Clean Feed is called Canada Day, and it's my pleasure to welcome Harris to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's talk a little bit uh, about the the record, and I'm particularly interested in the people that you've assembled for it. Uh, it's mm. just a, such a fantastic band. Will you uh, talk a little bit about how this particular group of musicians came together? 
Oh, sure. Um, it, uh, let's see, I moved to New York in 2006 kind of for good. I'd been going back and forth for a year. I lived here briefly in the late 90s and then was in L.A. for a while. So I kind of made my way back here for good around 2006 and um, was sort of uh, wanting to have a working band, uh, meaning something, a project that, you know, like uh, played regularly, whatever that means these days, which is, um, you know, anywhere from, I don't know, once a month to, you know, a half dozen times a year or whatever. Um, but so I tried out a bunch of different uh, lineups and ended up with um, this lineup around July, I have the image July 1st, 2007, uh, July 1st is Canada Day, and it just seemed like a good way to uh, name the band at the time. Um, and so Nate Woolley had been in there from the start. Um, he and I had met through mutual friends. Uh, and then uh, Chris Dingman, the vibes player, I had met while I was still living in L.A., and he was a student at the Monk Institute. Um, and Ivan Opsvik, uh was a bass player I met through Tony Malaby, uh, and he just worked perfectly. And Matt Botter, the tenor player, is someone that, um, I don't know how we met. I think we met through, uh, Jessica Pavone and, uh, just thought it would be nice to have a tenor player that had, uh, an older sound in a certain way combined with a very modern approach too. But, you know, someone who, I mean, obviously was in- influenced by, uh, Coltrane and Sonny Rollins as everybody must be. But, you know, ultimately his sound to me is kind of, a at least in a in a, a, a jazz context, harkens to kind of a pre-bop kind of sound and a, a softer uh, tenor sound and Lester Young and um, that kind of influence. So I, I wanted some kind of foil for Nate that also could get into this sort of a sound world thing that Nate does so well and Matt does too, but also um, as a sort of had a real old, uh, soft, kind of fluffy tenor sound too. So... Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about that? We should mention, first of all, that Nate uh, Woolley plays trumpet in the band. And uh, can yeah. you talk a little more about that idea of kind of a, a foil or, or complementary sounds or contrasting sounds? What what about that appealed appealed to you, or why did you think that the band would benefit from having it? That's a good question. Uh, Nate, uh, for me, is a, you know, he's, he's probably, he may well be just about the most frequent and simpatico collaborator I've ever worked with just about i mean my my wife sarah schoenbeck is a bassoonist and i think we have a nice rapport also <laughs> but besides <laughs> sarah i would say that uh nate you know i mean he, we really we we get along great musically and are close friends and the whole thing just kind of works you know and something that i've always admired greatly about nate's playing is his um he's he's a he's as harmonically sophisticated a trumpet player as i've ever heard but is also as adventurous uh, a timbre explorer as any instrumentalist of, uh, that I've ever heard, any instrument, not just trumpet players. And so that kind of combination has always appealed to me. Um, as a drummer, I've always been, I've always wanted to be um, as much a traditionalist as an adventurer as possible, these kind of seemingly difficult worlds to reconcile. And that's something that I, um, I've always admired greatly in Nate's playing and Matt's too. And so in finding, you know, a, a trumpet and tenor front line that could like you know sound like Woody Shaw and Joe Henderson and then sound like Axel Berner and Rudy Mahal or whatever you know this kind of a complete adventurer kind of combo was just something that really attracted me and there's there's plenty of really many many great and inspiring players around these two just really uh, work to work together well 
I'm interested uh, to hear you use the word traditionalist in that description kind of of yourself as a drummer. In, in some of the, the previous interviews that you've given that I had read, you you talked about the fact that like a lot of people kind of about our age, we were born a couple years apart, that uh, mm. you got into jazz, you know, kind of, I don't know about backwards, but not necessarily from, you know, Jelly Roll through Ellington and Basie through, you know, kind of up chronologically. Right. And mm-hmm. that you were, you said in one of the interviews that the things that interested you the most were the people who kind of combined diverse elements rather than the more traditional, like, let's all play like 50s or 60s bop players. Have you, right. have you refined that impression of your, of your role in the music or are you just using the word traditionalist in some other, some other way? Well, I just think, I mean, from the very, beginning of my sort of formal study, I guess uh, Barry Alshu was my first really serious teacher, or at least the first teacher I had while I was taking it seriously kind of thing. Um, and he re- he always emphasized, uh, you know, from whatever his whole catchphrase is, from ragtime to no time or whatever. Um, and it's really something, I mean, Leo Smith is also kind of my, 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 my most significant mentor, I feel like, and he also completely sees himself and is to me a traditionalist. He's someone in the continuum of, of Jelly Roll Morton and, and, and Fletcher Henderson and Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington and Basie and all these creative musicians who were all innovators and all individualists in the end. I mean, to me, it, it just isn't interesting to try and sound like anybody else. I mean, I couldn't do it very well anyway. So, so for me, the, 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 the respect for and adherence to, tradu- to tradition comes from, um, trying to find your own voice and find your place in the music. Yeah, that, that makes I don't know a... if it's been refined more or not, but I'm constantly hoping, trying to refine it over what will hopefully be a long, long slog, you know? Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. You uh, you mentioned in the assembling of a working band that in this you know July first performance that this seemed like the group. What how do you how do you know when you have the right five or six people together? That's a good question. That's a good question, and I don't you know I'm not entirely um, sure I can define it uh, in a certain way. It's like there's a, there's something intangible that happens when the right group of people 
get together, um, and it isn't necessarily. Uh, you know, it's funny. I was just listening to WKCR as I often do when I'm driving around town at uh, Columbia Radio, and there was Phil Shap talking about the Bill Evans trio. And it wasn't that uh, Scott LaFaro and Paul and Paul Motion played Bill Evans' music better than any other drummer or bass player could have, or whatever. And there were plenty of great trios that he had throughout his career, exploring basically um, similar repertoire and similar kind of uh, you know ideas of uh, the sort of a. Uh, you know, constantly shifting roles of each person in the group, whatever. But somehow, Lafaro and Motion, there was never a Bill Evans trio that was as as great as that. And so, to say what that was, I'm not sure. You know, if you called up Paul Modian now, I'm not sure he could say what it was. But he would vouch for the fact that it was it was what it was. And and it's not to be vague or, or sort of mystical about the thing, but I think it's quite difficult actually to to put your finger on what makes chemistry right. Um, I tried a number of different fantastic bass players, a couple different horn players, um, a couple things besides vibraphone as a choral instrument, and they were all cool. They were all nice things about them, but I don't know. So, there, I mean, for, for Canada Day, something that, I've, uh, that I was hoping would happen and did fall into place was that it ended up being there's five people who don't always play together in every other band kind of thing. Like, um, Nate and Matt have played together in very many, you know, several different things, but that would probably be and I've worked with each of them in other things, but neither of them had worked with Ivan, I don't think at all. Um, Chris and Nate had worked together, one, you know, sort of like not four people who worked together in ten other bands. So I do think there is that. Uh, that, that did come across my mind in, in assembling that group. And similarly, Matt has um, some performances. He's subbing for Fela on Broadway at the end of February. Canada Day has its first gigs of 2010. And um, Chris Hoffman, the cellist from uh, Henry Threadgill's band Zood, uh, who's a good friend, is going to sub. Um, and it's like it, he has a relationship to some degree with Nate and uh, with Matt a little bit. I don't think he and Chris Dingman have played, but in trying to think of the right person to kind of join us for those performances, I wanted to find somebody who I thought maybe we would get into this similarly intangible place of, I don't know why this works, but this really works. So we'll see, you know. Yeah, and I think most people, when they need to find a replacement um, for their tenor player, you know, they put a cello in. That's just a standard, <laughs> yeah. standard yeah. subbing. It sounds yeah. really cool, though. I mean, the, one of the things I really like um, about about you and your approach to both composition and to uh, kind of collecting musicians is that you seem to have uh, you seem to have a very strong vision, and so you are doing things in the service of this vision, not just seeing what happens if I throw these five people together. And I wonder, can you talk a little bit about uh, the compositions on this record and uh, kind of where, whether you already knew who the band was going to be and whether there was something, uh, I don't know if thematic is the right word, but uh, some kind of compositional goal you had in mind uh, with the compositions on Canada Day? I realized actually recently in a, uh, an interview when someone asked me about my most recent work, which is this non-net record that will come out in a few months, if it was related to previous records of mine or previous books of, of tunes. And it turned out that it was related to um, a 2007 record called The LCNI Plus Octets um, and also a 2002-2003 record called Fight or Flight, which these sort of mid-sized chamber jazz ensembles. With Canada Day... Um, I, when uh, someone had asked me what it related to in my previous work, it, I, it harkened back to the first record I did while I was a grad student at CalArts in 2000 called Last Minute of Play in this period. Um, but I realized also that there's a 2005 record I did for 482 called The Soul and Gone, which was a project with some Chicago musicians. And in a way, Canada Day ends up being my third kind of 
uh, small or mid-sized kind of a combo record in in that um, the writing is like song songs um, and forms for a small group to stretch out on. Uh, there's 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 some pieces that have kind of slightly longer forms, but um, for the most part, they're all pretty compact structures and. Uh, Similar to, to Solangon and Last Minute of Play, although those are long ago, so they sort of feel like a lifetime ago. But similarly, I was going for these compact things that people could, you know, we could have sort of a page of music each, more or less, and 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 off we go, you know. But but at the same time, have these these kind of uh, sense of song going throughout the tunes and have them be kind of in Canada Day, as it turns out. I mean, it's, it's, there there's very little. Uh, music that happens on that record where there isn't some kind of groove going on and that's kind of a something that's settled in my own playing as a as, a, as an instrumentalist and also as a composer somewhat in the last few years um i i, I still explore areas where there isn't uh time or pulse per se but that's definitely something that i think is kind of solidified in canada there's a um time you know <laughs> Yourself, uh, look back at Last Minute of Play and Soul and Gone and now Canada Today. Are they kind of three snapshots of differing approaches to small group work on your part? Yeah, or? I think that's I think that's fair to say. And I do can you can you trace any kind of evolution or things that you've added or discarded uh, from album to album? Uh, it's I, yeah. I, again, I think it's a, it's a, at some point whether it was on in trips to West Africa and a study traditional drumming or just a general interest in drum kit playing uh kind of returning to a, a simpler kind of approach to things where time is kind of a central concern i feel like that's been refined from not just on these three records of kind of small combos but really throughout everything uh i don't know i just feel like groove has become kind of central and groove not like in a overtly flashy or virtuosic way just an approach try, trying to have the music feel settled um you know in, in terms of rhythm so even if things are if there's like for instance there's a piece on canada day called uh and when to come back 
and it's you know there's like it's like a different meter every bar or whatever but it was like it wasn't like that for any sort of study in you know rhythmic complexity it was like just how i heard that that those grooves and how the 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 melodies came together or whatever so it's like uh hopefully that what's been refined is just like not wanting to overcomplicate things and to have music that is visceral but you know still still is interesting to me and hopefully to a listener in some kind of you know uh, uh headway also but but you know it's sort of settled and and grooving ultimately you mentioned earlier uh, the influence of of Leo Smith at Cal Arts. Can you uh, can you talk about uh, what made him so important in your musical development? Sure. I mean, this is something that I I feel like I I, I can't I can't uh, talk about enough. You know, and and definitely comes up in in probably every interview I've ever done. Um, it's he just was a really central influence as a person, um, as an artist. You know, as a composer um, and as an instrumentalist. He just is a is a total. It's that, that the the Max Roach line about I'm not just I don't want to just be a drummer I want to be a musician I don't want to just be a musician I want to be an artist I mean it's really that that's you know as as kind of um, trite as it, it may or may not sound in in our you know in 2010 I mean that's basically what Leo's deal was too he's like don't just don't just walk in the door as like a you know a whatever instrumentalist you are think approach your music as a conceptualist and a, as a um, as an artist, and and that 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 will hopefully uh, guide me through, you know, a, a hopefully a long life, you know, a long career. It sounded like uh, he had a, a particular approach to editing composition that you found useful as well. Yeah, definitely. Those are that that also comes up a lot. And I, I know anyone who studied with Leo would must attest to this. I mean, he just has a wonderful talent for. Um, for chipping away at the stuff that uh, isn't necessary in a piece and finding the musical moment is how he described it. Um, there may be more than one moment in a piece or not, but he really is is um, extremely gifted at, at, at finding the essence of a, of a piece, and that's very helpful when you're writing music and trying to figure out what is necessary and what's extraneous. Um, you know, especially when it's not like when the when the challenge is to write music that sounds like yourself and that is original in in its approach to form or instrumentation or whatever um it can be a challenge to also be uh um, a good editor a good self editor and a good um uh, how would i say it uh, just to not overwrite you know and and that's that's a and I probably, I'm sure, as I, I've also said in interviews, as Leo looked, if Leo looked at my music now or any of his former students, I'm sure he could find plenty of stuff that didn't need to be there. But uh, in general, that lesson of um, find the most important things, thing or things in what you've written, and 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 milk that and get rid of the fluff, you know, is really a, a abiding lesson.
I know we're we're kind of getting into the uh, dancing about architecture realm here, but in when you talk about editing and finding the most essential things, are you talking could could it be anything uh, from a, a melodic development to a harmonic structure to a, a rhythmic idea? I mean, it, I guess absolutely. The, and so how do yeah. how do you again? This is I, I get this is esoteric here, but how do you know when you've found it? Yeah, it's it's a good question, and I'm not sure I can can exactly articulate it, except to say that um, the nice thing about a working band, although it, it can't happen in one-off situations too, but you find out things when you try them. Um, you know, you can sit there and you can sit at the piano and you can feel like you came up with the greatest thing in the world, and you can bring it into a rehearsal and it can not work at all. And any version of you know from one spectrum to the other. You can think you have nothing, and it can turn into something. I remember we Canada Day had a short CD release tour in the fall, and we were the third gig into it, maybe fourth gig into it, maybe. And one particular kind of minute little piece that was, I don't know, it just wasn't working. And um, all of a sudden, Ivan uh, tacked it on as a sort of coda to another piece. Like we could, we kind of almost finished something, and then he just started playing this other piece, and it became. Excuse me, it became this perfect addendum, and now is when we play it is only played as the end of this other piece. You know, so it's like you never know, um, and you find out by playing it. Hopefully, you know, uh, and you, you, you trust the people you're working with to, to help you find out. Uh, on the spectrum, I'm just going to make up right now from uh, determining a, a great deal of what's going to happen in any composition to uh, at the other end, which is here's a sketch and let's see what happens. Uh, mm. Where would you say the this kind of uh, music on Canada Day fell in the recording, recording or compositional process. Well, I think because we'd played those pieces for a couple of years almost when we recorded in December '08, that band had been playing them for a year and a half, more or less. Um, because of that, I think we 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 knew we knew what, not what was going to happen as far as the um, you know in, the, this this improvisatory quality of someone's solo or whatever. Um, but form-wise, I think we knew kind of how things were going to go. And the nice thing about that session was that we, were, we weren't really reading. I mean, we knew those pieces. Uh, so so they, while they weren't sketches, they ended up being these sort of like forms that we dealt with. Um, there was that kind of uh, a looseness to it that is really very, very important, I think, in music making. And it was the first time, actually, that I made a record where I felt like the band didn't need to have the charts we just knew the music you know and could and could be quite free with it as a result you know even though we were um staying within the parameters that we kind of established together uh you mentioned uh, harris a few minutes ago uh the forthcoming project and uh, is that woodblock prince is that the name yes of that record yes. Will, you, will you talk about that project yeah it's a non-net uh that i started last spring just about a year ago we did a four-week four saturday residency to kind of try out these long form pieces um, that I had been kind of working on for most of 2008, I guess. I spent a long time trying to write these sort of um, chambery, kind of non-net. I, it was uh, sort of a study in uh, finding a way to make a lot of instruments in the same range that I really loved have some transparency. So even though there's enough um, kind of registers covered in, in this group of instrumentation is clarinet, alto saxophone, bassoon, French horn, trombone, tuba, electric guitar, bass, drums. I kind of conceived it as these sort of three trios, you know, woodwinds, brass, and a rhythm section. Um, there's a lot of critical mass in the middle there. Um, Erosin's tuba, although it's a bass instrument, ends up being a kind of 
serving a lot of tenor function, as of course is trombone, as is bassoon, as is horn. You know, uh, so somehow I had to find a way to make all the music not feel too cluttered while still having this really, I love instruments that have these wide ranges, particularly something like bassoon and trombone. Um, they're so rich, especially in the middle register. So um, it was a, a kind of an extension of these other sort of mid-sized chamber ensembles. I just love... I just love the sound of unusual instrumentation and fi- uh, not not for its own sake but for the new sounds that can come out of it and the new blends that I that I end up hearing. So um that record we recorded it in January um at Systems 2 in Brooklyn um in 4 hours which is not ideal but actually went <laughs> smashingly. Um and it's going to come out I feel it looks like in June on a Lithuanian label called No Business. And it's going to be an LP release which I'm kind of excited about it's my first First time I've heard my music on vinyl. So it's being released on Lithuanian vinyl. That's, well, yeah, that's fantastic. the label is called No Business. Um, <laughs> they're a new label. I think they're about 15 releases into their catalog. I think they basically started in the end of 2008, and uh, it's a very adventurous label that's trying to, you know, get 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 a get it going. And um, uh, I think they're like all all labels out there, kind of wondering how to approach things from a you know a business standpoint and how they can make things viable and. I guess they want to try this sort of, you know, somewhat boutique approach where they do a very limited pressing of vinyl and then they send out sort of CDR promos for press. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm quite looking forward to seeing, uh, to hearing the, hearing it on wax and also to, um, seeing, you know, uh, after, you know, my career is 10 years old. Everything I've done has been on CD. It's like when you see things on four and a half inches or, you know, four by four inches, whatever, it'd be nice to see a full eight and a half by 11 or whatever it is, 11 by 11, uh, uh, jacket. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, uh, mm-hmm. when you uh, when you're writing for a non-ed as opposed to the uh, five piece, for example, on Canada mm. Day, does that have a similar effect to if you compose a piece of the piano and you compose the next piece of the guitar and you do the next one on a bus with no instrument at all? But does it right. does it affect uh, kind of what comes out of you because you're thinking of an entirely different uh, kind of organic whole? Yeah, I mean, I think had I approached Canada Day in a similar way to Woodblock Prince, it, it wouldn't come off sounding similar as far as the richness of the size of the group. But I was trying to write these long-form pieces for this non-ed, and that, I think, therein was the difference. Like, Canada Day, all those pieces are pretty compact. They might have ended up turning into seven- and eight-minute pieces, but the amount of written material is quite a bit different. These, the, the, the chamber piece, more chambery kind of pieces for the non-ed, we're really trying to explore taking some material having kind of um, multi-movement pieces and constantly reimagining the material to make a long piece that has, you know, quite a bit of uh, ink, you know, whereas the, the, the quintets, in some cases, there's some longer pieces, but for the most part, again, they're kind of these compact sort of songs, but um, it, it would be actually a very nice challenge, and I, I wonder when I will do that, <laughs> hopefully at some point, to write for a small group in a long-form chamber sense. I haven't actually kind of done that, I suppose, in a certain way. Harris, you mentioned that uh, toward the end of uh, this month of February, uh, you've got some gigs coming up with the band on Canada Day with uh, cello in for tenor saxophone. Will you talk about uh, where those are happening so folks can come out and see it? Yeah, um, they, if anyone is in the New York area, they're, um, Canada Day is playing February 26th and 27th. It's a Friday and Saturday night, uh, 10 p.m. sets at iBeam, which is a, uh, artist run space in, uh, the Gowanus neighborhood of Brooklyn, sort of Park Slope adjacent. Um, iBeamBrooklyn.com is the place to go for information or my website, but it's spelled I-B-E-A-M, Brooklyn, 
dot com. Um, and yeah, that's uh, it's going to be nice. It's uh, as you had mentioned, there's cello. Uh, Chris Ackman is subbing for Matt Botter, so it's cello instead of tenor. I'm quite interested to hear uh, how that instrument instrumentation will sound: trumpet and vibraphone and cello and uh, acoustic bass and drums. Uh, and it's a uh, we're playing four pieces that we kind of started on this tour in the past October, and then five new pieces. So uh, it's kind of a a new book and um, it's strange sort of to start it with a sub in a way, but uh, I'm also really looking forward to hearing what that instrumentation sort of sounds like. And um, yeah, so February 26th and 27th at iBeam in Brooklyn at 10 p.m. And uh, yeah, if anyone's in the area, please come on out. Well, it sounds great. My uh, my guest is Harris Eisenstadt. His album on Clean Feet is called Canada Day. Uh, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. I thank you for coming on the show, Harris. Absolutely. Thank you. That's music from Harris Eisenstadt. He and the Canada Day Band will be performing February 26th and 27th at iBeam in Brooklyn. You can find out more at iBeamBrooklyn.com. That's I-B-E-A-M Brooklyn.com. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free anytime you want it at iTunes and at thejazzsession.com. At thejazzsession.com, you'll find links to the mailing list, the Facebook group, the Twitter feed, the RSS feed, the iTunes subscription. It's all right there for you, as well as a donate button. If you'd like to give a little back to the show, you can do that via the donate button, any amount you like. You don't have to. The show is free, but uh, I could use the money. So if you got a little extra you'd like to give up for whatever the Jazz Session gives to you, I'd appreciate it. Thanks. 
While I'm handing out thank yous, let me send one out to the Respect Sextet, respectsextet.com. They recorded the theme music for this program and many fine albums. You can find out more at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel. He designed the show's logo. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. Please tell a friend about the jazz session. Go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And then come back next week for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.